For some, this Christmas, even gathering today, is a debate. I didn't even know it was a debate. Never thought about it until people started asking me around Thanksgiving, um, so are we meeting on Christmas? And I'm like, I, w- I would think so. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't know we'd do anything different. And, but like, I got it because like, I know what in America is supposed to take place on Christmas morning. And so I had to actually think about it, and I, I tried to ponder when was the last time that we had Sunday uh, and Christmas Day on the same day, and where was I? I don't know where I was, <laughs> um, but it was 2016, and I can't remember it. I wasn't here, I know that. <laughs> um, but I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, those of you who are part of our church family, those of you who are here, thank you for being here. Um, We do this every Sunday. Worship our incarnate Lord, and we get to do it today on a day that uh, our culture is dictated is an appropriate time to do it. But what what we're doing is so, it's so old. It's so old. I know it may have seemed debated, but it's been around a long time. You know that song you just sang? It's literally over 1,700 years old. Since about A.D. 275, um, Christians have been singing that same song. They celebrate a similar truth. It would become crystallized in uh, language about 100 years later that you know well All Christians have confessed for a really long time now that they believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, very God of God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made. Notice that light of light. Like, well, that's a really great term to describe the incarnate Son. And yet, they were singing it a hundred years before they ever officialized it. My point is, friends, we've been doing this a long time. We've been celebrating this way uh, for a couple millennia now. And the anticipation of that that we even reviewed last night has been building for thousands of years now. God, wrapped in flesh, has offered Himself as a gift for our benefit. That's what we celebrate. So two questions to answer very simply this morning. How do you unwrap (laughs) this gift? How How do you receive something so historical, huge, high, and holy? God offers Himself in human form through His Son. How does one receive that? And then, uh, secondly, why? Uh, What's the motivation? Why receive this gift? What's at stake? Is the consequence, I mean, is it as simple as me just saying, well, if you don't receive this gift, you're going to burn in hell? I don't know about you, but when I think about gift giving, holding a gun to someone's head, like typically isn't the way that I want them to receive the gift. 
hell is true, but I don't think that that's the leading motivation for receiving the gift. We'll find out those motivations, interestingly, from our continued study in the book of John. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 12, as we conclude today the first half of the book in a very short amount of time. Well, a relatively short amount of time. (laughs) You want to know something cool about John? Most people have broken it into two halves, and they think it's very intentional that John would have been thinking the same. There's book one, it's called the book of signs. There's book two, it's called the book of glory. The book of signs, the the first volume of this like kind of two-volume book ends here. It began with an epilogue. You ever read one of those? You normally skip them. Like if you're in a book, you're like, oh, let's just get to the the, uh, introduction. Let's get to chapter one. But we, we read the epilogue even at the beginning of the service today. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what was said at the very beginning in the epilogue of this uh, book of signs was that uh, God would come through His Son as light, and the, the world would resist Him, His own people would reject Him, but He would take on human flesh. I mean, John's forecasting exactly where the book is going. And then he continues through the whole thing to say, Hey, I'm going to give you all these signs that show that this human is actually God. And so we saw miracle after miracle after miracle. But with the signs came speeches. Because apart from the, the actual speech, all you're thinking of is, oh wow, this, is, this guy's strong, this guy's powerful, this guy's divine. But you don't really know what to do with him. You don't really know how to receive him. You don't really... and just let me use the modern metaphor, how to unwrap this. You don't know how to appropriate this. And so Jesus speaks. He doesn't just show. He speaks. He says, all right, here's how this works. I'm coming to you as the divine rescuer, and here's how you receive me. You're believing in me. That that sounds like intellectual assent, but it means more than that. You trust in me. You depend on me. And so through the whole book, up to this point, we've seen signs, we've seen speeches, and we've seen something else. We've seen rejection after rejection after rejection. People just keep saying, no, I don't think I want that. They like the signs, they don't like the speeches. Because in the speeches, he says, hey, I'm not just going to come and fulfill your every wish like a genie coming out of a bottle, but I'm actually going to do it in the way that must be done. I'm going to die. He says it over and over again. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again, and you need to believe in that. I'm not just the genie in a bottle. And so they reject it. And we saw last week, as we got to the end of this thing, that, you know what? Jesus is done. He walks away from them. He no longer speaks to the crowds anymore. It says that he hid himself from them, like he's done speaking to them. He's no longer going to be trying to persuade the masses. From John 13 on, it's all about the inner circle, the disciples. And right before you think the door is shut on the public ministry of Jesus, we get this interesting few verses that are like, an epilogue. So there's the there's a 
prologue. It's an epilogue. This is this thing that happens on or after. And I want you to read it with me. Verse 44, John 12, 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Pause, please. Notice, back in verse 36, it says that Jesus had said his last things and he departed and he hid himself from them. And then all of a sudden, in these verses before that, verses 37 to 43, he talks about unbelief and how terrible it is. We talked about that last week. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you have this thing that says Jesus cried out. Well, who's he speaking to? Well, he's not speaking to the group. This is something isolated. John took a speech that he heard from Jesus. Another time that he heard him preach, and he almost like cut, he, he cut it and he pasted it right here because he wants everybody to hear this before he moves on to the new thing. So this is Jesus in like the heat of the moment. He's crying out. He's yelling. That's what the term means. But we don't know what audience he's speaking to, which is important. Because John doesn't want to tie this to the historical context. He wants anybody and everybody who's reading this to listen to this message. It's like a divine exclamation point before he transitions into the new book. And it captures all the main themes of John up to this point. There's no better way for us to turn the page from the book of signs to the book of glory than this. And the whole thing is wrapped up in this central truth that this one who has come is actually the representative of God. See it there in your text. What is being offered? It says in verse 44, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So to believe in this one is to actually believe in the Father. And then it says, whoever sees me, or the Greek term's a little stronger, whoever gazes at me, gazes at him who sent me. So when, you, when, you, when they see Jesus, when they look at Jesus, they're not just looking at Jesus, they're looking at the one who sent him. He's portraying himself one final time as the representative of God. He is not something lesser than He is not something similar to. He is saying, when you see me, when you believe in me, you are believing in God. You are seeing God. That's the gift. That's what's being offered. And how do you receive it? He says, believe, trust. But the point, the point here at the very end, and this is where it's going to be helpful for us today, is why? Why receive him in this way? Why believe in him in this way? What happens when you trust that Jesus truly is God, His chosen representative? The text presents us with several benefits for believing in Jesus as Lord and God. They're very simple. It's because Jesus is light, Jesus is right, and Jesus is life. Light, right, life. Verse 46, Jesus is light. When we receive him as God, we get light. Look at the verse, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 
Uh, in case you missed it, <laughs> Jesus has come into the, this realm, this world, the, the, the human race uh, as light, and that implies something, that there was darkness. Now, darkness for us isn't that threatening because, think of it, friends, when are you ever really in the dark? I mean, just a few months ago, we had uh, a significant weather event. We call it a hurricane. Knocked out the power, what I assume for all of you, except for you coy ones who have those in-ground generator things that automatically start everything up. But for the normal among us, it got pretty dark. And yet, it was never really dark. I had cell phone light, I had multiple batteries, I had little lantern things. I mean, like, we were covered. When are you ever truly in the dark? And yet, you need to understand, friends, like the incandescent light bulb is a relatively new invention. For thousands of years, darkness has been a significant problem. When it's dark, things go badly. When it's dark, one, you don't know what's right, what's wrong, what's good. Like, you don't know what you're touching, you don't know what you're feeling, you don't know where you're going, you don't know where safety is, you don't know where the threat can come from. I mean, this is a very common problem. Darkness means that you are ignorant and therefore you don't know what could be harming you and you don't know what ultimately could help you. And so Jesus says, look, the world is suffering. They're remaining in this darkness and they think they could see. And yet they don't really know the truth about what's harming them both now and in eternity. And they don't really know the truth about how to get help both now and in eternity. They're missing something. And this metaphor, friends, of light and darkness has been used for a couple thousand years to great effect. Take you back to your philosophy classes, or maybe if you've ever studied Plato and you remember uh, that little allegory that he would use of the cave, and he said of his own uh, philosophy and teaching that all the, the Greeks, they were like men who were sitting in a cave, and they were chained there, and they were just staring at a wall, and all they could see on this wall were shadows, but it's not shadows from light, but shadows from a fire that was burning behind them. And since they'd never seen anything else, they just assumed that the shadows on the wall were reality. And yet one would come and actually offer to bring them out of the cave into the true light to show them how things really were. And Plato actually says, you know what, they prefer the darkness to the light. They prefer the comfort and the safety of their own little cave than actually stepping out into the way things really are. Now, the hubris of Plato was that he actually thought that his way was the light. <laughs> and yet the glory of Jesus is that he indeed does offer true light. He has been showing us the way things really are. What our greatest threats are. Our sin, our selfishness, our unbelief, and our only source of salvation God radically intervening in the person of His Son, dying the death that we deserve to die, rising again from the grave, providing the life that we so desperately needed to live. That's the truth. That's the light. He says, I'm coming as light. I'm coming to show you how it really is. I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm God in, in human form so that you can see and understand and know and be clear about who I am. 
And so we avail ourselves of this light. How? How do we take advantage of it? By believing in Him. That's what the text says. It says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Until you believe in Jesus, you are blind to that which would harm you and that which would help you. You would think that it would be the other way around, that Jesus just forces the light into our eyes. No, it starts with trust. It starts with dependence. It starts with belief. And yet, until God opens our eyes, until we actually respond in faith, there is no hope for us. Paul reminds us that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. And what happens is those who are refusing to believe in Christ are destroying themselves both now and for eternity in all kinds of ways, and they don't even recognize it. They just feel it every once in a while, like life isn't going the way that they think it should. There's this um, intersection right around the corner. You take a right off of Autumn Oaks here. You go down Oaks, go down two more streets. And if you go down there, you can take another right and you can like cut over to Target if you don't want to have to go on a Mockley. I hate to tell you that because that means more traffic, which means more accidents. You're thinking, it's just a simple intersection. My friends, I live back here. I see a wreck there probably once a week at least. And it looks really deceptive. It's just a simple like intersection. But the problem is that when people are trying to turn left onto this Oaks Boulevard, what they have is a turning lane, and the people who are sitting here actually can't see past those who are sitting in the turning lane, and so they just kind of have to make a blind turn because it's hard to get out. And and you know what happens every time? I I can imagine. I haven't been there, but I can imagine. Like if you were to ask the person, why did you pull out in front of that car? Why did you run into me? What did they say? I couldn't see. I couldn't see. Uh, Blindness leads to regular destruction. (laughs) Of course, if they would have seen it, they wouldn't have done it. And yet, why is it that we just so regularly end up destroying our lives in so many small ways, like death by a million paper cuts? It's because we don't see. We don't know. And yet, Christ has come to show us that which is ultimately most destructive and, and, thank God, and that which would deliver and save. He is light. And you've got to trust. You've got to believe Him to avail yourself of that gift. And if you do see, you thank God for that. The old hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found was what? Blind, but now I see. Friends, it's God's grace that you know now what is eternally dangerous and what is eternally delivering. It is all of Him. Paul says it this way, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Friends, if you're believing here today, if you know the truth, if you thought it wise and good and right to even show up and celebrate Jesus on a Christmas morning, that is God's grace to you. Light has shone. He's delivered you. 
Thank Him for His gift. So believing in Jesus as Lord and God benefits us with light. There's another benefit. It also benefits us with right. Not just light, but right. This is probably the most dense and confusing section here, but let's go for it. It's Christmas morning. 47 to 49. Read it carefully. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Now, this is where things can be a little confusing because we're talking about benefits of believing in Jesus as Lord and God, and you're hearing stuff like this. Um, commandment, judgment, obedience, authority. Like, that just doesn't sound like the kind of Christmas present you want. <laughs> no, nobody is often looking for uh, some commands, Nobody say, you know what, for Christmas, I'd really like you to boss me around. Please. And yet, Jesus is offering his authority as a gift. Notice what he says here. Like just, just look at the text. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I'm not, I, don't, I don't judge him. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Notice this. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to give rescue. And it almost makes you think like, oh, well, that means Jesus isn't going to actually judge anyone. There's no consequence for doing wrong. But notice what he says in verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. We say, what? Jesus isn't the judge? (laughs) Jesus is saying he didn't come to be the judge in the here and now. His first coming was not about judgment. His first coming was about telling you the truth about what's right and what's wrong. And he's saying when that judgment day does come, finally one day you will be judged. And it's not going to be by him arbitrarily trying to get back at you for not receiving him. It's going to be on the basis of the words that he has spoken. He's told you the truth. He's told you what's right. You will no more be able to fault him for judgment on the last day than you could fault Isaac Newton for falling. It's gravity. He's telling you the truth. He's telling you what's going to happen. It's a good thing. He's letting you know what's right. And he's saying, I'm providing a way out for you. And his commandment here, by the way, that he's talking about is not do this, do that, uh, try to live up to this, fulfill this ritual, renew yourself in these ways. All he's commanding them to do over and over again, first and foremost, is to rely on him as God's Savior. Like, I don't know about you, friends, but there's some commands I just don't mind. Last night we got home. My wife cooked prime rib. It was good. And she says, in not a bossy tone, but it was an imperative. Eat. (laughs) It's time to eat. Y'all come to the table. Now, I don't think any of the kids lost their mind last night. I seem to remember everybody actually thinking that that was a great command. Nobody's like, man, she's so bossy. Wanting us to eat. 
And yet, what has Jesus been commanding? Believe. Receive. What is He, what is he telling them He is? He says, I am your eternal food. Feed. Eat. I am the water of life. Drink. He's given a commandment. The commandment is life. Like, he's telling us what's right. He's like, don't destroy yourself. This is a good thing that he's actually shown us the way. He's inviting us, inviting us to come under his lordship. I think the problem here is that we often assume that we have a better way. I love the way that C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity. He says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Jesus isn't telling you to clean up your life. He's telling you to lay down your arms, your weapons, your resistance, and to come under his liberating lordship. And you ignore that, you ignore his lordship, you ignore his rule, you ignore his reign, you will be judged. But not out of some vindictive motive on his part, but just it's the way it works. Gravity pulls down, grace flows to those who depend on Jesus. It's a law. Which leads us to the last benefit of believing in Jesus as Lord and God. We've seen that He benefits us with light and with right. And then finally, with life. With life. Look at verse 56. This is how it ends. Or excuse me, not 56, I apologize. 50. <laughs> There's no 56. If you found that good, you have a different Bible. <laughs> verse 50. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is important for, for you to grasp, friends. Jesus wasn't operating independently. I think sometimes people think of Jesus as this like uh, free-willing spiritual agent. He, he came as the representative of God, therefore he would only say what God told him to say. That's exactly what the text says. You look at the verse above it, he says, look, I have not come on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus only speaks what the Father tells him. I mean, we have a good track record of like looking to Old Testament prophets, for example, and saying, oh, they speak on behalf of God. I'm going to trust what they say. Jesus is in that line of prophets in a way because he only says what the Father tells him to say. And he backed it up with his miracles. And so Jesus is saying that you're not actually rejecting me, you're rejecting the Father. That's been the whole point of the text up to this point. You're not actually just receiving me, you're receiving the Father. But here's the deal, when you receive me, when you come under my Lordship, when you believe in me, when you trust in me, this leads to life. It's eternal life. It's a positive. It's not believe in me or burn in hell, although that may be true. Jesus is leading with the benefit. His final call here, his final appeal is like, don't you want to live? Don't you want to know what eternal life is like? And that's not just quantity of life, friends. It is quality of life. 
It's a better existence both in the here and now and the hereafter. Jesus offers liberation. He frees us from our guilty conscience. He he actually gives us a sense of God-glorifying purpose. I always like the old poem. It's nice to update. Jesus isn't just giving rules like the law. The saying goes, to run and work the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But greater news our Savior brings. He bids us fly and gives us wings. Life. Not, all right, here's a new set of rules, and you're not going to be able to follow them. Just do the best you can and wrestle through. No. You get to represent God the way He always intended you to. And because of my life-giving presence, because I've satisfied the penalty of sin, because I've provided eternal life in the person of my Spirit, you will be able to obey in these ways. And when you fail, I will forgive. And one day you will fully, finally, perfect, and forever live for me and glory. It's life. It's life. And so I make the simple appeal, friends. Unwrap the gift by faith. Cash the check by faith. Jesus is crying out in this final moment, like, receive it! I think it's really cool that I just working our way through John. Here we are on Christmas morning in this particular text where Jesus is just saying, Hey, this is what I'm offering. This is how you take it. And I don't know what you do in your own family for Christmas, um, but it'd just be downright like shame, <laughs> wouldn't it? To see a gift laying there under the tree and just leave it? Don't you want to know? Like, don't, don't you want it? I mean, Christ is offering Himself to you afresh again today. How do you receive it? You depend on Him for it. And then I think another tragedy, a similar one, would be to unwrap the gift, to appropriate the gift but never use it, to neglect it, to forget about it. Um, I'm, I'm speaking mainly today to those of you who are gathered here because you wanted to worship Jesus. Sometimes I think we forget about the gifts that we already have. Does anybody remember what they got four Christmases ago? I doubt it. Unless a child was born on that day. We just forget we forget what we got. You know what you have, friends? You know what you've already unwrapped? You know what you've already appropriated by faith? Light. <laughs> you know. You've been spared. The eternal consequences of, of darkness. You know what's wrong. You have come under the safety and rescue of Christ. You have light. It's a good Christmas, friends. You have right you know the way back to God. You're no longer driving blind. 
Like the Spirit of God actually indwells you and enables you and corrects you, and that's all good, friends. It is a wonderful gift of God. You have light, you have right, and you have life. You have life. You're, you're not trying to get life. You're not trying to earn life. It's not just out there one day as a prospect. You already have it. And so even when you fail and even when you screw up, guess what? You still have life. Because it's eternal. Eternal, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> and so it's a good Christmas. If if indeed you have received this one as Lord and God. We end where we began. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Look to Him. Lean on Him. Let's pray. God, You have given us a good gift. You've given us Yourself in the person of Your Son. Entering our humanity, taking on our sin debt, dying rising again, ruling and reigning even now, one day soon returning to finish what he started. So it's a good Christmas. We celebrate with great joy today our Lord and Savior Jesus. And yet we know that there may be some even here today who have yet to believe in him, to trust in him, to receive him. And I pray that they would receive, that they would benefit, that they would know life, right, and light in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.